at the time, my manager looked at me like, are you out of your mind? Uh, we're trying to make money here. Right. And uh, we're going to take some, we're going to add to our cost of our product. And at the same time, we're going to sell it for less. How, how does that work? You are now connected with Enclave for Entrepreneurs at O'Hare International Airport in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Enclave O'Hare, the local to global learning and earning center for entrepreneurs and their influencers. On October 21st, 2020, we had the privilege of hearing from Leslie G. Munger, former Illinois comptroller and deputy governor in our new Making a Point lecture series. These events are dedicated to calling attention to the urgency for having more women leaders engaged in the economic recovery from the pandemic and beyond. Listen in to hear Leslie share her stories of leadership in both the public and private sectors. I'm Leslie Munger. I am the former Illinois Comptroller and Deputy Governor, and now I am a mom and a wife. Love it. Love it. And you uh, spoke tonight on, um, you know, the, the title was uh, More and More and More Women in uh, Leadership, both in the public and private sector, which you've been in, in both. So it was really fascinating for you to be here tonight, and, and thank you for coming. Um, one of the first points that you made in your presentation that I thought was really interesting was the um, Harvard Business Review study. Uh, that you had shared. Can you share your perspective on that a little bit? Absolutely. Uh, in preparation for my talk this evening, John had sent me uh, a number of articles, and one of them was from Harvard Business Review. It was a study from last year, and it was very surprising to me. It actually talked about the number of women in higher levels of leadership. Uh, it was very surprising to me because women represent more than half of the population, mm -hmm. uh, just under half of the total workforce. And yet when we look at where women are in the highest levels of organizations, whether it's a CEO level in the private sector or the governorship as an example in the public sector, there are relatively few women mm -hmm. in those levels, at those levels. You know, we can speculate as to why that is. Um, I suspect uh, some of it is that back in the day, you know, we women didn't have mentors and role models at the highest levels. So um, it takes a while to develop those and to see people achieving the things you might like to see and aspire to those kind of positions. Um, I think women also sometimes uh, take a detour in their careers to stay home and raise their family, and that slows things down and kind of changes the trajectory of your career. But I thought it was particularly important because when I looked at the details of that study, women, were, when rated by their peers, their subordinates, and their managers in a 360-degree uh, performance review, mm -hmm. Women rated better than men on 17 of 19 important leadership qualities. Wow. And so I thought, well, we should have more women in leadership. You know, women are good at this. Absolutely. We are natural multitaskers. Uh, we have interesting perspective, and we probably are frequently better on the social-emotional issues that are becoming more important these days. Absolutely. 
And and I think part of that study too that was interesting was that it it even though women have you know they're outscoring men in these key areas they don't necessarily feel like they're prepared for that. Yes, that was the most interesting thing to me is that the um, while everyone else rated the women very high, they rated themselves lower. And that probably also has something to do with women in higher levels. While everyone else around them thinks that they can do it, they don't. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. It's from Henry Ford, and it really speaks to believing in yourself. Uh, The quote is, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Absolutely. Yeah, that is a great quote. And I think, you know, here at Enclave and, and John Dallas, you know, they teach us how you think is is really critical to your success, not necessarily what you think. Can you share with us how that's really contributed, you know, for you? I have kind of an unusual background. Prior to my time in business and uh, certainly prior to government, I have a more creative background. I, my undergraduate degree, believe it or not, was in interior design. Uh, I figured out fairly quickly I could not afford to live on a designer's salary and, <laughs> and got myself into a job that I could uh, uh, get a, to at least live on, and I got myself into graduate school to, to change my career. Mm-hmm. But that that background, I think, gives me the ability to look at things differently, and I, I think about all the the discussions I've had with John on thinking and thinking about thinking uh, and thinking about thinking things thoroughly together. Which is called metacognition. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And how I have used, I think, my creative ability to look at problems differently maybe than just, you know, how you might see them at first face. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think a good example that you shared of that tonight um, was I think you were at a consulting firm or maybe the company that owned it, and I'll let you clarify, but uh, you you had a big success with the Suave brand, which a lot of folks are probably familiar with. Can you detail that a little bit for us? When I uh, worked at Helene Curtis, mm-hmm. I was um, in my – I was in a brand assistant and uh, started there. And over my time there, I rose to the level of brand manager. And mm-hmm. one of my – first jobs that I had to do when I took over the Suave Hair Care brand was to get it growing again. Helene Curtis was a small company at the time. It was about $200 million business. Mm-hmm. And a Suave was $100 million of it. Wow. And we, it was a very important brand to the company. And yet, for a number of years, it had been slowly declining, um, just bit by bit. And that was critical because the profits from Suave were funding a lot of the new brand development at Helene Curtis. And so we needed to get that brand turned around and headed in the right direction fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we looked at a lot of the things that were going on in the market, in the category, with our competitors. And the management, uh, my management at the time, really thought that our biggest problem, or one of them, was that all of our competitors had moved to using a flip-top cap mm-hmm. on their shampoo and conditioner bottles. Suave still had an, an old screw-on cap, which was a problem because our our target audience, our buyers, our users, uh, were value-oriented shoppers. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you have a screw-on cap and it doesn't go on quite right and your bottle knocks over in the shower and you lose half of it, that's not a very good value anymore. Right. Uh, our competitors were... Were, had packaging that looked better than ours. And so the directive from my management was to look at the brand, to figure out what to do, but to think about, you know, we had to change the cap and we had to do some more promotions and 
maybe up, add another uh, line extension or two. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I thought the problem was deeper than that. And we did a lot of analysis and we tried to understand where we were losing volume, why we were losing volume versus our competitors. And uh, we didn't want just a short fix. We wanted a long-term fix on the business. Yes. Well, through our analysis, we learned that we had lost display volume. Uh, the big displays that you'd see when you went into a Walmart or Target, uh, where Suave would be 99 cents a bottle. And we lost it because we had, over the years, taken a lot of price increases, just a penny a year. But we finally got to a point where the our customers didn't want to run Suave at 99 cents anymore because they lost a penny or two every time they ran a sale. You know, it was good for them in a way. They would get a lot of big families into their store to shop. It was better when they could break even on it. But when they were losing money, that wasn't so good. And we lost a lot of volume that way. Yeah. So we uh, put together a plan that would really address the value perception of Suave. And I can still remember when I went in to present it to my management, um, I told them, we're going to improve the quality of, of the product. We're going to put on a flip-top cap. That's going to cost us three cents a bottle. Mm -hmm. We're going to improve the formulas mm -hmm. uh, and make them better. We'd like to invest in some advertising to really raise the image of Suave. And we'd also like to roll the price back 10%, a nickel, uh, actually 5%, a nickel a bottle. And uh, at the time... My manager looked at me like, "Are you out of your mind? Uh, we're trying to make money here, right. and uh, we're going to take some. We're going to add to our cost of our product, and at the same time, we're going to sell it for less. How, how does that work?" Right. And uh, yet, I uh, have to give my the manager and Helene Curtis great credit. They they said, "Okay, uh, we'll let you go with it." I had set a share goal for a 10% unit share of the category at the time, which was very, it was pretty aggressive. We were at about 7.5%, mm -hmm. so it was about a 25% increase. Wow. And uh, so I I'd sent this goal, and they said, okay, this is a very aggressive goal, and we don't think you're going to make it. But if you do, the president of our division said, I will dance down Wall Street. <laughs> well, uh, it was about a year later, and it was a beautiful day in Chicago mm -hmm. when the police uh, courted off one lane of traffic on Wall Street, and the band started up, and our president danced across the Chicago River north um, <laughs> to the front of the Helene Curtis building uh, to a crowd of roaring employees because we had not only um, gotten a 10% share, we actually blew, blew past it to a 10.9% share. We took category leadership in both a dollar share and a unit share basis. It's fantastic. We doubled our sales volume from $100 million to $200 million, and our profits increased 80%, and Suave was the leading brand in the hair care category. I'd say your ideas worked. It worked. <laughs> and I, it's a really great example, I think, of, like you had mentioned just now, really thinking it through thoroughly. Like, you took the time to really investigate and understand what did the buyers want, and obviously it was a huge success. Um so, so after, you know, a, a very, you know, long and, and um, you know, good career in business, you mentioned, um, you know, your mother earlier, uh -huh. and there were times where you, you know, had thoughts and, and frankly feelings of, you know, I want to be home with my children. So, you know, at, at Enclave, we learn a lot about it, using emotions as a data point for entrepreneurs and leaders. Can you elaborate a bit on that, on how that played a role in your, mm -hmm. you know, moving forward? Yes, my, my career at Helen Curtis progressed uh, very well, and I ended up being responsible for the 
um, hair care category, which uh, by this point at Helene Curtis was a, a portfolio of brands worth about $800 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as part, as as um, time had gone on, Unilever had bought Helene Curtis. And so now we are part of a much bigger company. And I wasn't just traveling to New York and back. I was traveling to a lot of places that sound really fun, <laughs> uh, Paris, Tokyo, London, uh, but you're halfway around the world when you do that, and you're in meetings in the basement of a hotel somewhere for a number of days. And I had done that just enough where I actually was sitting at a in a meeting in Tokyo, the, the global hair care meeting for Unilever, and all I could think about was I should be home. And it was really a, a light bulb going on for me yep. to think, I need to change the trajectory, the path that I'm on. Yes. Uh, my children were young at the time, and they were um, starting. They were in school, uh, f- I think, f- kindergarten and first grade or second grade at the time. But I thought, you know, there's a babysitters and nannies can do a lot, mm-hmm. but when they're in school, a, a parent should be there. And mm-hmm. um, I'm grateful for my husband. Uh, for uh, working so hard to allow me to step off the path mm-hmm. and to stay home and raise our children. And I, I say, looking back, it's the best thing I ever did. Um, our children are doing, our sons are now 28 and almost 30. They're doing really well. That's great. I'm glad I was there for all those years. And I um, learned through that that, um, you know, there are a lot of different ways that you can feel success in what you do. Absolutely. And that's that's just you doing some good old fashioned just reflecting on your on yourself and that's that's great. It's something that we we practice here and preach here a lot as well. Um let's shift over to the public sector, your public sector experience. So you are a former comptroller of Illinois. Um and tonight you shared um and I thought this was really interesting, the kitchen table of state finances exercise you kind of came up with and you know, you attribute uh that to being a mother. Can you share with us a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, so, um, well, first of all, let me just say, I never, ever thought I would be doing anything beyond just staying home with our kids and, <laughs> you know, volunteering like I had been. It never occurred to me I would be uh, changing my career track and, and going into state government. But I had volunteered for a lot of different things and uh, had started to get involved a little bit helping some of our other candidates because I was unhappy with how things were going in the state. Mm -hmm. And someone uh, reached out to me and talked me into running for state representative, which at first I said, no, that's not (laughs) a thing for me. And then after talking for us, I said, okay, I'll give it a go. And I actually came pretty darn close to winning Mm -hmm. and got myself on the radar. Uh, And so when Governor Rauner was elected and Judy Bartopinka was elected to her second term as comptroller and then sadly passed away a month later, mm-hmm. the governor had to appoint a replacement. And um, he chose me. So uh, there I was, a brand new comptroller, uh, not 100% sure what I was doing in state government. And mm-hmm. I will have to say, when you run for office, you learn about all the different things that you're going to be doing. When you are uh, kind of launched into it with uh, what turned out to be eight days notice wow. um, between first being called by the governor's team and uh, being sworn in eight days later. Uh, it's a whirlwind. Know, it's a total <laughs> whirlwind. You walk into things, um, you know, not really knowing what you're getting into. And in many respects, that actually helped me because not having been stuck in state government for my whole life, I really brought my business 
background and my running of my own household eyes, you know, to the Love things that. in state government. Uh, and so one of the things that I would do when I was comptroller, uh, we were in a period where we had no budget. The legislature had failed to pass a balanced budget. The governor had vetoed it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was going around to groups all over the state talking to them about the problems with not having a budget and all the the challenges that I had the comptroller had because there were a lot of bills I could legally not pay. There was no legal mechanism for me to release state funds without a budget. Mm-hmm. And one of the reporters raised her hand and said, uh, well, the, you know, you just said we had um, $10 billion worth of bills and we, are, we owe state government, uh, the, our university higher education, um, we owe them money, about $2 billion, uh, and we have all this pension debt. Uh, this morning, uh, one of the senior people in the Illinois House said that we were going to ra- run out of money in, Nova- in uh, March if we didn't get a budget in place quickly. And, and this was October when I was having this press conference. Mm-hmm. She said, is that true? Are we going to run out of money in March? And I just said, I, I said, I looked at her, I said, I just told you we have $10 billion of bills that we don't have the money to pay now. Today, I said, we're out of money now, not in March. Right. And so it made me realize that people did not understand the magnitude of the problems that we were dealing with. And so what I um, decided to do was to get these numbers down to something people could understand in their own homes. Mm -hmm. Um, That particular year, the state uh, expected to have about $32 billion of revenue coming into the state. I just mentioned we had about $10 billion of unpaid bills. We had $2 billion of money we had owed to higher ed, but we couldn't release the funds for. And we had about $115 billion of unfunded pension liabilities at the time. And so... I um, said, let me help you get these numbers down to something you could understand in your home by taking six zeros off of them. Mm-hmm. I'd like to imagine, have you imagine that you're sitting down at your kitchen table to pay your own bills. I said, we had $32 billion of revenue. That's like $100 a day or an annual salary, about a little over thirty-six dollars or $32,000. So um, let's just pretend you're sitting down, you open up your checkbook, you look in there, there's $100. You're looking, you look at the pile of bills you have to pay today right in front of you. you you're looking at bills that total about $10,000. Um, you know you spent more money. You just don't have those bills in your hand yet. Those will be coming in the mail for higher education. That's another $2,000 of the bills you're going to have to pay soon. Mm-hmm. And if you open up your credit card statement and look at the balance owed on your credit card statement for our unfunded pension liabilities, you would be looking at a bill totaling about $115,000. Right. Now, you have $100 in your checking account, and you got $10,000 of bills today, what are you going to pay? Are, are you going to look at that money and go, oh my gosh, it's it's time for a trip to the mall. <laughs> I have $100, which is kind of what our legislature was doing. They just kept running out and spending more money with no understanding of the fact that we had this massive debt. Mm-hmm. And um, I will say, I took that story all around uh, as I talked to groups, and finally I could see the light bulb going on. It really was a simple, it's simple to understand when you think about it like managing your own household budget, which all of us, except the government, I guess, has to do. <laughs> yeah, but your your example of doing that just makes it so relatable, I think, to anybody. Um, you know, I'm sitting here shaking my head as you're, I'm not a numbers guy. So for me, I'm like, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me when you boil it down that way. Um, Leslie, can you tell us about your newest venture? Yeah, so uh, since leaving state government, 
Uh, I've uh, spent the last year and a half just kind of getting my life back under control after literally four years of absolute uh, chaos mm -hmm. and, uh, and talked to a lot of different groups. And one of the things I think I'd like to do now is to use the skills that I have, both from my business career as well as my time in state government, to, um, to help businesses through some consulting uh, and also to help coach uh, leaders in businesses, um, women in businesses, mm -hmm. and try and help them be more effective. Uh, I learned a lot about myself when I was in state government, when I got thrown into really a job, as I mentioned earlier, that I had no idea what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I learned quickly, and I learned to have, to have confidence in the collective set of skills that I had that I'd built over my all my different experiences, private sector, being a parent, mm -hmm. and uh, also uh, in state government. And I learned that there are some things that I was fairly good at, and one of them is coming in and seeing areas that are problems pretty quickly yeah. and being able to um, work to get rid of them and smooth out processes and really help businesses, and in my case, government, do things faster, cheaper, and better. And so uh, that is what I'd like to do in the in what I have been working on right now is uh, trying to be a voice, particularly for a lot of the small businesses we have in the state um, with respect to this graduated income tax. I've been giving a lot of presentations via Zoom on that and talking to groups because uh, I'm very concerned about the ramifications of that mm -hmm. uh, for our business community. Should that pass, and I guess we'll know in a you know, fairly short period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And you you were at the ribbon cutting for Enclave um, and, and, you know, helped with that. And I know you've known John Dallas for many years. Any, um, you know, closing thoughts? And I think especially for, you know, any of the women um, who are listening that are very interested in entrepreneurship or leadership in the public sector, what, what would you leave them with? Uh, I think I would uh, like to leave really everyone, particularly women, but, you know, everyone with another story uh, that I learned early on in my career, another quote Great. Uh, from one of my um, mentors at Procter & Gamble. Uh, when I was first in the brand marketing area, I worked at Procter & Gamble, and my um, one of my managers had a little placard on his desk. And every time we went in there to make a presentation to him, he would point to this little placard, and he would say, if it is to be, it is up to me. Always remember those 10 little two-letter words. Those mm -hmm. are the words on the placard. And I remember those, and I really held them close. And what I think about, um, I feel like it's a call to, to leadership, to personal responsibility, to stepping up and jumping in, even when you might wonder what the heck you are getting yourself into, right. which I've frequently done. <laughs> and uh, I think that everyone should realize that we have skills, we have talents, um, we need to use them, we need to have confidence, and we need to step up and say, I'll do it. Uh, and I think actually that's one of the great things about this organization, Enclave, uh, and certainly um, John Dallas. He really has, he helps business leaders, uh, entrepreneurs uh, with confidence and with the skills and tools to help people understand, I can do this. That's right. And I think maybe that's the hardest thing sometimes is believing in yourself and having the confidence to say, uh, I, I can do it, but I'm telling you, run, just do it.
That's right. And you're a shining example of what can happen when you, you have that attitude. So Leslie, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Happy to do it. There you have it. Leslie is a walking, talking example of challenging the way you are thinking. And to put it simply, just do it. She illuminated how women in management and leadership posts can and should play more and greater roles in reimagining and rebuilding the badly hobbled local, regional, national, and global economies. For more information on our virtual and in-person Third Wednesday Masterclasses, please visit us at EnclaveForEntrepreneurs.com.